It is my pleasure to welcome Gary Richmond to the platform this morning. He's our uh, lead-off batter for Month of the Family, Family First Aid. And if you notice in your uh, bulletins, you can take out your notes, but you're going to probably just be listening right in a few verses down. He's going to talk about a view from the zoo. Now, I got to tell you something. Uh, there's very few friends in my life that I can actually say this, that I use all three of the books that he wrote, and he's written 22, but three in particular, this one, A View from the Zoo, and a few more, there's two more like it, sequels, uh, that I actually use them in raising my kids, because I love to tell stories, but I am an amateur compared to this man in telling stories, and it was the basis for our family time stories when I put my kids to bed, especially with my son who had an active imagination. I tried to impersonate the Black Widow Spider and some of the things that he talks about here, but I'm not very good at it. But uh, Gary Richmond has been a friend of mine for over 30 years. Seven years, early on as a young man, he was a zookeeper at the L.A. Uh, County Zoo, City Zoo, and uh, he'll tell you what that means a little bit more. He was on staff at the Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, California for 27 years, and at the time was the only single parent pastor in the nation. Um, for many of those years, and a ministry that reached hundreds of single parents. Um, for 32 years, he was Father Nature at Forest Home, and if anybody is in my era remembers that, that he would come up and do these Father Nature stories at Forest Home. I don't think they quite do it like that anymore, but that was a real legacy of family camps for years at Forest Home. But his biggest claim to fame is that he's been married 50 years to his sweetheart, Carol, the same, the same woman for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, would you give a warm ABF welcome to my friend, Gary Richmond? Thank you, John. No, couldn't love John any more than I do. And he's like one of the people that's steady and uh, one of my most admired pastors of all time. This is uh, a great treat, and uh, I have uh, known John, it seems like, for a number of years now. I don't know how many years it goes back, but met him in Edina, Minnesota, at uh, Grace Church in Edina, and it was the dead of winter, and all the trees were covered with frost, and uh, my wife was... Uh, almost succumbed to great temptation. They have a shopping area there called the Mall of America, which quite literally is a mall that has five miles of shopping. I mean, it has specific stores, like a store with just butterflies. You can just buy butterflies. And uh, the, it is so specific in the times. I have a great sweatshirt that I still wear from there that I got that says Minnesota, and it has a beautiful picture of an elk head on it. And, uh, but at any rate, that was, I think, one of the beginnings of, uh, of Month of the Family way back then. It's a great concept, and uh, John brings that to every church that he's ever been part of. Well, I have, uh, I, I want to tell a little bit more about, about myself because say, what kind of a man would wear a shirt like that? And, <laughs> <laughs> and the answer to that question is a man who worked at the Los Angeles Zoo for seven years and was their first veterinary assistant. If you've been to the doctors and you've been to a physician's assistant, you'll know they can prescribe and they do a lot of procedures, including small surgeries and stuff. 
And uh, so I wasn't just a vet tech, uh, although that's a very important job, uh, or a lab tech. I actually assisted the doctor in surgery. Uh, and maybe one of my main jobs was to capture and hold down animals that needed to be restrained and uh, to protect his hands and his body. Mine were put in danger as I leapt on things about the size of baboons. Actually, we grabbed cheetahs. And so I've grabbed cheetahs and wolves and uh, all sorts of snakes and, and all manner of creatures. And I uh, did that with the man who is now considered to be the greatest zoo veterinarian who ever lived, Dr. Charles Sedgwick, asked me to be his first assistant. And he later became a college professor, a professor at Davis and then at Tufts on the East Coast and uh, was most recently just given a Life Accomplishment Award that said he's the best, the best in exotic medicine. So it was fun to be next to him because he was just a teacher wherever he went, whoever he was with, whoever he was speaking to in whatever setting, he would talk out loud and tell people what he was doing, why he was doing it, and how it would help. And so I had the benefit of sitting next to him. And he, to this day, he's one of my, uh, well, he's a legend and a hero and a friend. He's uh, in his 80s now. He's retired, but he's volunteering and doing surgeries for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. I, I don't think he'll, as long as he can make it from one place to another, he'll be helping somebody, and, and especially animals. At any rate, uh, that gives you a feeling for what I did during a period of time. And then I returned to ministry, youth work, since the zoo had prepared me for it. And, uh, so, <laughs> and so why not use the uh, education I had received to actually help people? And you'd believe, you wouldn't believe how strangely the same they are at times, <laughs> zoos and churches, uh, at any rate. But one of the things that I want to say is that uh, I, from the day that I can remember my activities, I love nature and always had a Skippy peanut butter jar with holes poked in the lid to go out and capture some spider or insect and study it for a period of time and then set it free again. Uh, there was never a time I wasn't fascinated uh, with the uh, creatures of the earth. And when I... Uh, became 16, I accepted Christ into my heart, and uh, I discovered that, and had it clarified to me that God had been the creator, that he had made all of these things that were so fascinating to look at and play with, and uh, there's never been, I, I've always been one who just looks funny when someone says I'm bored. Uh, there's so much to see and so little time, and I don't have a way of getting bored. There's not, uh, there's just too much to do and too much fun and too much beauty. And so I'm very thankful to have been up close and personal with it. Then I, as I gained knowledge of the scripture, which I fell in love with immediately after I became a Christian, I wanted to know the answers to all the questions and then created some questions that nobody had asked before myself. And uh, at any rate, one of the things I learned that, that made me admire God even more, because to this day, I, I, I tend to like people who like animals and not like people who don't. Do you ever have that feeling? I feel that same way on my political uh, <laughs> perspective <laughs> and a few other things. But uh, uh, if uh, somebody is mean to children, I don't tend to like them. But at any rate, uh, children and animals bless the beasts and the children, for in this world uh, they have no voice, they have no choice. I don't know if you remember the carpenter singing that beautiful song. But uh, the scripture has much to say on animals. Uh, when I became a Christian, uh, in the Assembly of God Church in Pasadena, we had a huge youth director. He was about 6'6", and he played a lineman for his college football team. And he was a big, affable, uh, easy uh, to, to laugh, uh, easy to like, and very friendly and caring, and he took me in. He took me in after my dad had died of a heart attack and my mother was being housed in mental institutions 
for one attempt after another at suicide. And when the Bible says God will be a father to the fatherless, uh, I know from personal experience that that's really true. There was never a time, as, as if I gave you certain facts in my story, you'd say, boy, he really had a hard life. It doesn't seem like it was hard because God was always giving me what I needed during all those periods of time. And his grace was sufficient for me, and he himself was uh, sufficient. As uh, it, it says uh, in Jeremiah, God is my sufficiency, and I've learned that. And it's a wonderful verse. And uh, I, but at any rate, I, I started having questions as a new Christian. And I'd had enough hard experiences that in my family, a part of our family was the family dog. Now, there are people who have never had a dog. And that's okay. I, don't, I really am not serious about it. I do like everybody, even people who like cats better than dogs. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but... Uh, my dog was a special counselor and friend. Did you know that people live longer that own a dog? Two to three years? Did you know that? That's just a weird fact. And, but it's true, and it's, it gives you something to be responsible for, something to live for, something to take care of. And petting lowers your blood pressure. And so uh, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful thing. And so we have two wonderful little um, old therapy dogs in my lap every night. And so, any rate, um, I had a dog when I was young whose name was Ladybug, and she lived to be 19 years old. And uh, she was with me during all the hard times. She was there after my mother's first attempt at suicide. And when the house was quiet and my dad took on extra jobs to pay the uh, psychiatric bills, she was there in my lap with her loving eyes looking up at me and snuggling to make sure that I knew that somebody loved me and that somebody could be close. I knew that about my dad, but he was so tired from all that he had to do. And uh, at any rate, uh, I just, when I first became a Christian, I, it was at a time when I had separated from my dog. My dog went out to 29 Palms to live with my grandparents, and I stayed with my brother in an apartment where we couldn't keep a dog. And I missed her terribly. And at the church, I asked the youth director, will my dog go to heaven? And uh, he looked at me, and his eyes kind of winced. You know what I mean when somebody's eyes wince, it's like, I wish I hadn't heard that question. I'm not sure what to say. Because they don't teach that at seminary. I can pretty well vouch for that. And, and, and those guys don't know. They're so busy looking at books, they haven't taken the time necessary to consider the creation. And so he looked at me, and there wasn't anything lacking in Sam for love of me or care. He was the greatest youth director ever. But he says, well, he came from Oklahoma, so he said, well, if God wants her there, she'll be there. So I knew he didn't know. And uh, so, pretty obvious. He says, why? And I think as a joke, he says, why don't you ask Pastor Smith? He was the head pastor. So I thought he was probably thinking it later now that I'm older. I'm thinking he's thinking, yeah, I'll let Gary, I'll sick Gary on Pastor Smith, who had been giving him a hard time lately. So I went up to Pastor Harley Smith and says, uh, Pastor Smith, I says, will my dog go to heaven? And he looked at me and looked confused, and his eyes went both way like somebody that's looking for a door. And uh, he says, well, God wants her there. She'll be there. So I knew he didn't know either. And uh, I accepted the fact that pastors don't know about that sort of thing. So I, I had a simple but honest uh, prayer. I said, God, I, my basis for loving you is not on the basis of whether or not my dog will go to heaven, 
but I'm kind of curious how you feel about that sort of thing. And so as I study your word, which I fully intend to do and thoroughly, I, would you please show me if there's any reason to believe that she may be there? And as, the, uh, uh, as I made it from week to week, month to month, year to year, and as they began to pass, I was 16 when I uh, accepted Christ into my heart. And as I look at you now, I know you can't believe this, but I'm 70. And so in all of those years, I never found one scripture that would give me any feeling other than our animals will be in heaven. And if you really want to get an idea of that, read the eighth chapter of Romans where it says the whole creation will be redeemed. And, uh, and if you want to get another shock, uh, read the book of Ecclesiastes where uh, the wisest man who ever lived said, uh, man has no advantage over the animals. Do you, don't you think heaven would be an advantage? And so that's one of them, but I could go on. And everybody knows that uh, God cared about the people in Nineveh, but when he was telling Jonah why he wanted to, to go to Nineveh, he says, I care about that city. It's a city of almost 200,000 people, 120,000, I think is the list. But whenever they were saying big numbers like that, just meant uncountable people. He says, and it's full of cattle. It's mentioned right in that verse. It's full of cattle. Why, why mention that? It's the people that you're supposed to go there to preach to. But God was interested in the animals. Now, when he flooded the earth with water, does anybody notice that there's like uh, eight people on the ark and uncountable animals? That, and that's the first real picture of redemption that you get in the Bible of God's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but sowed the cobras. And uh, so, it's, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting book, and it gets more, and, and, it's, and he says in the Old Testament, my animals, they honor me, says in the book of Jeremiah. Not all people honor God, and especially politicians. And so, uh, <laughs> well, then, you, I'm not going to tell you which side of that fence I'm on, but you could probably take a wild guess. And uh, so, at any rate, um, as I went through the Bible, just everywhere I looked, there was encouragement to believe that he notices the fall of every tiny bird. You know what it says, he watched, uh, the, the fall of the sparrow? It actually isn't the word sparrow. In the Greek, it's sporal, which just means tiny bird. So all of the tiny birds that could be netted, and then you could buy two for a penny, and then take them to sacrifice if you were very poor, they were just sporal, sparrows. But we call it his eyes on the sparrow, so I know he's watching me. And it says that he keeps all of the birds in the wild in his mind at the same time. Can you even fathom that? Have you seen starlings uh, rise up in, in groups of a 1,000? and uh, darken the sky uh, with their countless numbers, and that he never has one of those that are not inside of his mind. He's keeping track, and he loves his animals. And it says that uh, there's a special blessing for those who care for the, the animals. Did you know that, that the Bible says that? I could go on and on, but I don't want to make this a sermon about that, because the main thing is how much he cares for us. Uh, you know, you remember the rest of that song, his eye is on the sparrow, but I know he's watching me. You know, there's, there's an assurance that uh, we are God's first priority in the creation of things. But he does care for his animals. And did you know that they're to observe the Sabbath? Maybe that's the last thing I'll say. Has anybody ever told you that, that animals have to observe the Sabbath? I don't know. It's a weird thing to mention, but it's there right in Deuteronomy with the other laws that we're supposed to keep and pay attention to. Although I always made my parakeet work on the Sabbath. And uh, so, I'm just kidding. Had to be, I'm just kidding. Uh, that one of the verses that struck me uh, came in the book of, well, there's two that struck me, but one came in the book of Job, and it's Job uh, chapter 12, verse 7. 
And the verse uh, says this, let the animals teach you. Let the birds of the air speak to you. Even let the earth itself declare to you and the fish of the sea, for who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and in his hand is the life of every living creature. So we're massed all together in terms of what God knows about and that he's caring about everything. But uh, he tells us specifically, let the animals teach us. I had fits when I, had, I ran into that scripture. It says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I knew I was supposed to be a good soldier of the word and uh, to search diligently the meaning uh, of things. But I couldn't figure out. I worked at the zoo, and I was looking at uh, all sorts of well, tortoises to frogs to um, snakes and lizards, and I couldn't find <laughs> uh, anything about them that was wise. And so it says, be wise. And Jesus is the one who said it, so you pay special attention to that. What does he mean, be wise as serpents? Well, he's not telling us to be like Satan. Satan was actually a great red dragon, and you can find that out in chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation of John. He was not a snake or a boa constrictor and an apple tree. He was a great red dragon next to a good and evil tree, and because the fruit was good and evil, and uh, that's what you'd pick if you got one. You'd get a, new, a good and evil, because you pick a pear tree, you'd get a pear, right? Peach tree, peaches, good and evil tree, you'd get good and evils. And uh, so it just stands to reason. The, all these things are, some of this is very easy, but we just pass over it. And we take artists' word for it uh, of what it looked like. Well, he didn't look like a snake. And, uh, but what, what turned out to be wise as snakes, and it actually took me three years to, to uh, work this out, is that snakes can't blink. Did you know that? They don't have eyelids. And so they go a lifetime with their eyes open, and they sleep with their eyes open. Their eye cap is like a contact lens. And, uh, and when they shed their skin, they shed their clear scale that has no pigment on it. And it's replaced by another clear scale that they look through. So they have kind of protective uh, eyewear uh, over their eyes. So grit and sand don't scar uh, the eye. But the interesting thing is they, uh, even when they sleep, their eyes are open. And while they're asleep, their brain registered things, registers things that would be dangerous to them. So if they see something that would be dangerous to them, it wakes them up and they crawl to safety. And uh, so uh, the Bible says, be watchful. Uh, for your adversary, the devil, walks about seeking someone to devour, or someone whom he may devour, in another uh, translation. And so watchfulness is a sign of wisdom, and snakes possess that. The other one that says, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Well, the style of looking for food for a snake, and you've, you've probably seen them doing it on pictures on television, if you haven't seen it in person, but snakes will stick their tongue out and wave it in the air and then bring it back into their mouth and stick it out again and wave it in the air. They have a sticky substance on their tongue and molecules attach themselves to it and when they drag it back across the roof of their mouth, there's an organ called Jacobson sensing organ, which is causes them to be able to taste or smell food. When they get enough molecules registering on Jacobson sensing organ, they curl up and wait and aim their faces towards the oncoming food, and those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. When a mouse comes along or something that they eat, uh, they're either snake eating, bird eating, or rodent eating, uh, you know, that kind of thing. That's how they eat. Well, it's wise to wait upon the Lord, and when you do, he fills you. And uh, that's the two things that I found that were wise about snakes, so I didn't have to worry about that scripture anymore. You know, the, the, the mystery was solved, and I could move on to other things that were uh, equally obscure. 
So, now I want to tell you one that's more close to home because we've just had communion. And you know, it's, uh, you know when you do a communion, it's a very personal event. And uh, Jesus said to his disciples, from, in a sense he was saying, from now on when you do this, because they had taken communion before, but it was to remember the death angel passing over the children of Israel and not letting them die in Egypt. And that was the event that was, in their mind, the most cherishable event as their God cared enough for them that he protected them, but not the Egyptians. And so that was the biggest day of the year and the biggest celebration, the Passover celebration. And they were to remember that. And uh, that was something that happened under Moses' regime. Well, Jesus changed things. And on the night that they were having their Passover celebration, he says, from now on, as often as you do this, that's the communion, do it in remembrance of me. Remember, I was here. I'm the new Passover lamb. It's going to be my blood that protects you in eternity. And uh, so it, uh, it's something that when we take it, we should remember just how important Jesus was saying that event is and then personalize it because Jesus was personalizing it for his disciples and for us. Now, when I went to the zoo, I found that uh, as you just go through life, and you found this out too, you learn lessons by experience and uh, sometimes by the things that happen to you you gain a greater understanding of life itself. And that's true for me about Jesus and especially about communion. And let me tell you, uh, zoos exist for three purposes, to entertain purposes, to entertain people, a fun place, recreational place to go. Uh, they're there uh, to um, provide an educational place where people can gain an appreciation for the nature and the animals on the earth. And the third reason is to breed rare and endangered animals. The animals are, um, there's not as many as there used to be. When I was at the zoo, for instance, there we were, uh, we, when we got to uh, Plymouth Rock, there were about a million and a half California condors. Uh, and their principal food item was the bison. But we killed all but 400 of the 4.5 million bison that lived on the American continent. And no, that's not right, it was 75 million bison. And uh, we were killing the condor's food item, and so the California condor's uh, population went from 1.5 million down to 400 individual animals. Can you imagine a time when there was only 400 individual bison? Well, other animals have been much uh, worse uh, situation, but the California condor went from 1.5 million to 26. And then there came a day when at the zoo, uh, the men from Fish and Game rushed in as they had a condor that was struggling to stay alive, a California condor, a big one. And it was young, its head had not yet turned red yet, it was still pale pink, and uh, he wasn't strong enough to lift his head, and Dr. Sedgwick, this fine veterinarian I was telling you of, uh, put a great deal of charcoal into his stomach to absorb the, the coyote poison that he had eaten when he uh, ate poisoned meat designed to kill coyotes, but it would also kill anything else that ate the meat too. So we got it just in time, and uh, he, he recovered. And uh, all of the people in the zoo world were saying, if you want to keep this animal alive into the next stage, we're going to have to bring all of them out of the wild and into zoos and start a captive breeding program. But the purists say, no, let's just let them die in peace out in the wild and not put them in cages. So there was an argument that went on for a while. So we argued that we've made the uh, condor dependent upon the zoo, and he'll just die of starvation if we tried to put him out again. That wasn't true. 
but uh, a lot of things are said in that setting that aren't true. And uh, <laughs> we were able to keep the condor. And his name was Topa Topa. I have no idea what that means. It was an Indian name. They're always naming things Indian names, but never telling us what they mean. For all we know, we're, we're swearing. And uh, so, but he, he was a very playful bird. Uh, and uh, a fun, when you're stopping to think that you're standing before number 26 and there's only 25 left outside that cage, it's kind of a, a, a wondrous feeling to see something that rare and precious. Well, the, the word finally came. We were able to bring all the condors in captivity, and their numbers have gone from 26 to 500. And so it turned out to be good for the California condor, or the whooping crane, or I could go the Arabian oryx. I could name lots of animals that have, have uh, survived because of captive breeding programs, and uh, that was a good thing. But that's one of the reasons why zoo exists, to improve the populations. Now, rhinos have taken a serious plunge in terms of the number of rhinos that are allowed to... Uh, live, and the reason is, is in the Orient, uh, rhino horn, if you grind it up and put it in tea, as well if you dr uh, grind up the bones of tigers, and there's a handful of other animals, that is a good thing to give a very old man that makes him feel young again. I think that's the most uh, tasteful way to explain uh, <laughs> what I mean by feeling young again, and uh, so at any rate, uh, the uh, rhino's horns, uh, you know, they would kill a rhino, and that would be more than three or four years' salary for the uh, little group of natives in Africa or India or where, wherever they could find a rhino. They could live for years just on one rhino horn, the money that they could gain from it. Well, at our zoo, uh, we couldn't help the cause of reproducing black rhinos because all we had was King Arthur, a handsome black male who uh, was stunning, but he was sadly alone. So we needed a female so we could uh, fulfill that purpose of breeding rare and endangered animals. And I remember seeing the order that went out and it says, uh, we would like to order one very seductive black female rhino uh, to make happy a male rhino that's very lonely and waiting at our zoo. So we got the letter that she was coming and that her name was Lady Twinkletoes. This, this is the truth. <laughs> and, and so, uh, uh, so she, she left the port, and uh, there's no explanation about it. They, they always say there's no good time for bad things to happen. But this happened to be like the worst storm that ever took place in the Atlantic. And as she crossed the Atlantic, that uh, cargo ship that she was on was tossed by waves and slammed into these huge valleys of uh, water that were created by the stormy oceans. And uh, rhinos are very emotional animals, and among the animals that I've actually seen cry, elephants I've seen cry, gorillas, monkeys, uh, I've seen actually shed tears over situations that are sad. Well, at any rate, she had one keeper seeing her all the way across, and she ate very little. She drank enough water to keep herself going, but it was a constant whoosh. She got seasick, kaboom, whoosh, kaboom, all the way across the Atlantic. But a great thing finally happened. Uh, she was, they were able to turn right and get up to the Panama Canal. And uh, so in her mind, the, the trial was over, and she ate a little bit and drank and, and uh, sustained herself as they went in the passage through the isthmus of, uh, of uh, Panama there and uh, got to the Pacific Ocean, where one of the largest hurricanes in the history of that part of the world was occurring. And so it's like they didn't said things couldn't get worse, but they did. And so she made her way up uh, alongside of Mexico into the port of Long Beach, which was calm. 
But it wasn't quiet. There were foghorns and uh, tugboats and all sorts of things making loud blasts. And she came in and they finally docked and they got a huge, huge 18-wheeler and got a crane and lifted her about 50 feet into the air and swung her over. Now there's cracks big enough in, in the area so she can see, although she couldn't, rhinos see very poorly. They don't see but about 10 or 15 feet with focus. And then after that, everything becomes vague. And uh, so she, she was seeing enough to terrify her and smelling everything from diesel oil to things that had not been common to her way of life. And she was, she was uh, trying to get out of that crate and she was driving her 2,500 pound bulk into the front door of that and it was slamming and everything on the crate was shaking and wood was cracking. And uh, so they finally put it on the back of the 18-wheeler and this guy who drove the 18-wheeler, you're gonna think that my life is filled with people from the south, but this guy was definitely from Arkansas. And uh, he, we got that thing on the back of his truck and he headed up the Harbor Freeway on his way to the Five to get to the Los Angeles Zoo. And it was a specially crowded day on the uh, Harbor Freeway. And while he was in his cab, every now and then she would smash that front door and his whole cab would shake. So he got on he, his uh, radio and radioed the zoo somehow got connected through the operator of the zoo, and he says, you better be ready to get her off my truck. He says, she may be coming out. She may be running up to the zoo in a minute because she's just tired of being in that cage. And so it was shaking us up because we had an imagination of what would we do if a rhino fell off. Well, surely, even if it fell six feet, it would break its legs, and so that would be the end of the rhino. A dead rhino on the Harbor Free would be a sad thing indeed. So he finally made it to the zoo, but he was shaken, and uh, we had a crane at the zoo with a broken muffler. And uh, when they started up the motor to the um, uh, crane to start it, it went rum, bah, 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 And it sounded like a machine gun, like a bunch of AK-47 shooting at the rhino. I think they, this rhino had probably heard that before, and uh, that sound. And uh, so we, with big cables, cabled it together and started lifting it up, and it, it had to be lifted 20 feet to get over the trees that were right in front of the exhibit. So again, it was finding itself in the air, and again, it was finding itself with the need to get out of that crate. So it crashed into the door. We heard real big cracking and splintering, and even saw some material uh, drop off the front of the crate. And it was going painfully slow as it lowered down. And when it got about uh, 12 feet, all of a sudden, the front door came out and it started hanging from a hinge and uh, going back and forth, just swinging. The rhino came out to the end with her foot, and I remember when I was 12 and I jumped off the high dive at the Pasadena, Altadena Town and Country Club's high dive, and how many times I did this before I got up the nerve to actually do it, because it seemed like I wasn't going to hit the pool. It was just too small for that height. And uh, so, at any rate, she got out to the end, and all of us, the guys at the zoo were mostly agnostic and atheist, but the funny thing, in situations like this, they always prayed. <laughs> You'd hear them saying, God, don't let her jump. And uh, so, uh, you know, they, she kept doing that, and I know I was praying, but I was praying to the real God, whose son is Jesus Christ. And I was praying because the Holy Spirit was moving me to pray. It was a real experience, but I didn't want her to jump because of just, well, this animal was dear and had gone through too much trouble to die at this last second. Well, she got about five feet above the ground and she left the crate. Even that was enough to break her legs, but it didn't. She kind of, when she hit, she rolled to the side and rolled over and that took a lot of the weight. 
and, uh, but she got to her feet immediately, and through her teary, uh, blurry eyes, she saw the huge boulders inside of her new exhibit as other animals that may be a threat to her. So she charged it, this big, uh, big boulder, thinking it was another rhino or an elephant, perhaps. Elephants kill rhinos all the time. And uh, she ran, and she hit that boulder, and it didn't move an inch. But you could see the shockwave going right through her body as she fell to her knees and just trembled in front of the boulder and looked both ways to see what might be coming to hit her from the side. She struggled to her feet and walked a little bit further and saw another boulder and charged it. Again, she fell to her knees and repeated this a third time. I was standing next to Dr. Jonathan Bernstein, another phenomenal veterinarian, and I began to see a change. When we first saw her up there, she was a darker shade of brown. There, uh, even though the black rhinos are not black and, and the white rhinos are not white but uh, a different color, but it was more of a brownish color. And as I stared at her, she was no longer brown. She was turning sort of pinkish, if not reddish. And I, my eyes tried to focus. I think, what's wrong with my seeing? I've never seen that color on a rhino before. And then as she came closer to me, and I got closer to, I could see the truth. The truth of it was, it was as if she were perspiring blood. And uh, she changed from brown to, I'm not kidding, blood red. Bright red, blood red. And then the blood that was coming down her sides and her face and uh, her, off of her tail and everything began to drip upon the ground. And I turned to Dr. Uh, uh, Bernstein and said, Doc, what is happening? He says, well, this is in a group of animals that when they reach a point of stress, their heart is actually strong enough to pump uh, blood uh, so that it bursts capillaries right at the skin level. He says it's kind of like it's perspiring blood. He says in many ways it's, it's much the same. And uh, boy, that rang chimes because I had studied a lot of the Bible by this time, and I would studied a passage written by a physician in the uh, New Testament, Dr. Luke. And it went something like this. If, uh, you probably remember the scripture. And being in agony... Luke chapter 6, and being in agony, Jesus prayed all the more earnestly, and he per began to perspire, as it were, great drops of blood. And I thought, for the first time in my life, I understood that he was experiencing a level of stress as he was bearing our sins on his way to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane that was beyond anything that I've ever experienced. I've had severe pain, I've hurt emotionally. Uh, but nothing that's ever happened to me has caused me to break out and perspire blood on, as drops of blood onto the ground like that. And I stopped right in that moment. I didn't say anything. The vet was an agnostic, and so I didn't want to get into a theological argument with something that was so profound to me. And I just said, thank you, Lord. I think I understand just a little bit better what it means that you suffered for our sins. And Paul said he wanted to know Christ better and that he could do that by understanding the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And so I got to know Christ a little bit better that day and uh, by uh, seeing that happen. And uh, I have never gotten over it and no communion ever comes my way when I'm remembering his death and the blood as a symbol that I don't think what cost Christ paid to go through that. Now, this is where I usually go on and forget to tell you that she got over her emotional distress. This really bothers audiences and has, <laughs> if you just stop the story right here and say, yeah, well, what happened to her? She got calm. 
she finally calmed down, stopped trembling, and just stood there. Finally, she got a good long drink of water, and then the, the blood dried on. It was on, visibly on her body for three months. You can still see it turned brown, and she just looked like a, a crummy-looking rhino for about three months. But after a lot of washings and uh, time to relax and get adjusted to Los Angeles, California, um, she was then introduced to King Arthur, and a great love affair uh, came about, and uh, they stayed close and in love for a period of 27 years and produced six babies. Let me end the story on this note so you're not so sad about what she went through. Um, her third baby um, stepped on a nail that was left behind in construction and got a foot infected, and we had to remove the baby before it was through nursing, so we had to finish the raising, hand raising a baby rhino, which is no easy thing when the baby rhino is 200 pounds. And uh, so, but every now and then you, found your, you find yourself with these wonderful memories. I went down with Dr. Bernstein to help take care of the baby rhino, which entailed a big penicillin shot to take care of the infection. And so I, I took the syringe and broke the end of the needle off and threw it in the black bag. And I was bent over the bag, starting to clip the clip so that we could carry it out. And I was bent over, just like this. And I was bent over, clipping the clips on the, the black bag. Well, the rhino just looked at my bottom and as somehow, although rhinos cannot read, uh, that rhino read the word target, bullseye. <laughs> and at a speed of about 25 miles per hour, that baby rhino came flying across the yard and I mean bashed right into my bottom. And I was, as they say, airborne. And uh, that is the one experience in my life where I had at least a second or a second and a half to know what it feels like to be Superman. <laughs> stretched in and then I was slammed into a chain link fence just into a crumbled mass and all of a sudden I found the weirdest feeling but I found this warm cheek laying on my cheek as the baby rhino put her face down on my face as if to say this is really fun huh <laughs> and uh, so I don't know but I hope that that story can teach you about uh, Christ in a little different way and what he experienced on our behalf and that's what it means to learn from the animals. Uh, I really loved watching births, and among all of the births that I watched, the birth of a baby giraffe was uh, undoubtedly the most fun to recall. Uh, the, the mothers give birth standing up, and when you've got an 18-foot uh, Beringo giraffe uh, standing up, and uh, the baby begins to come out, well, I had never seen a giraffe birth before, and they called us down to the African section, to have the uh, hospital staff there in case anything went wrong. And what was really interesting was that they had bales of hay for us to sit on, and one of the bales of hay had the most knowledgeable and famous animal keeper of all time, Jack Bedall, who had seen it all. He was a, a real veteran of zoos all over the United States. He worked with Marlon Perkins, if that word means anything to anybody. But he, he had done things and a yearly got the Marlon Perkins Award, which would be like getting an Oscar for a zookeeper. He had so many on his, his shelves for his accomplishments taking care of animals. He was a famous zookeeper and a legend, and we didn't call him a zookeeper. We called him an animal man. That was a title reserved for about five, six people in the United States that could know even what the animals seemed to be thinking to take the best possible care of them. He certainly knew what they needed, and he always did what they needed. Well, anyway, I sat next to him, hoping that he would give me some pearl of wisdom that I could take away. 
and hey Jack, hey Gary. And uh, he always had an alfalfa stem out of his mouth. And I looked up at the mother and I saw the baby's neck and head dangling and it was shaking the amniotic fluid falling out of its ears. And I, I leaned over to Jack and whispered, when's she gonna lay down? He looked at me like I should know better and said, she's not gonna lay down, they give birth standing up. I said, yes, but her bottom is 10 feet off the ground. That's like a basketball rim above the ground. I said, that, to fall that far? And he says, yes, that's how they do it. And he says, there's a lot of amniotic fluid to get out of that long trachea and, it, and fluid in the lung that has to be pressed out during the compression she makes as she's in labor. And uh, so he says, that's, it's necessary. I says, I think we could help that baby, though, if we got like a fire net and, and <laughs> caught the baby. He looked at me like I was an idiot, and I was. And uh, I, I said, well, I think we should get a fire net. He says, Gary, he says, if you can get a fire net here in a few minutes, he says, I'll open the gate, but you're on your own after that. He says, out in the wild, mother giraffes have been known to kick the heads off of lions that tried to eat their babies. He says, but if you want to go in, it's up to you. I says, no, I believe I'll sit right here with you. Painful to watch, and finally it came out, and kaboom, this baby fell right on his back, legs all splayed out, but it coughed a lot of fluid out. And, I began to see more and more the necessity of this birth and the way it was coming down. But the baby rolled over into a sitting position, but seemed satisfied just to sit there and consider the world. It had been pretty dark up until this moment and was beginning to enjoy looking at the zoo and hearing sounds that had never heard. And, and uh, he, Jack turned to me and he says, if that baby doesn't try to stand up pretty soon, she's going to kick it. I said, kick it? I says, those legs weigh about 400 pounds. He says, nevertheless, it will. And the baby didn't try to get up, so the mother moved back a little bit, took her right leg and swung it away out, and kaboom! The baby went at least 30 feet to the left, rolling over and over and over, getting all dirty on the decomposed granite that it was living on. And I says, wow, call the Giraffe Protection Agency. And um, <laughs> he says, she's trying to stimulate it. I says, well, I'd be stimulated if I got kicked that hard. And uh, so. He says, and if the baby doesn't try to stand up, she's going to kick it again. It didn't, and the mother did. Kicked it again, and again, boom, and over and over and over. And it was hard to watch, but it did stimulate the baby, and it did start trying to get up. Did you see Bambi ever, where Bambi tries to get up and falls to the left, and then tries to get up and falls to the right, and Thumper the rabbit says, kind of wobbly, isn't he? And so that's what I said to Jack, kind of wobbly, isn't he? And Jack had never seen uh, Bambi, so he just thought I was a jerk. Uh, for, for talking like that. But the baby finally got up, and six of the seven of us applauded for the baby standing up. He says, don't applaud, she's going to kick it down. I said, what? After all that work? And he says, watch. So the mother kicked it down. I says, why did she do that? He says, so the baby can remember how it got up. He says, you know, in her mind, she's in Africa. There's hyenas and lions and leopards and all sorts of animals that would like to eat baby giraffe. And he says she wants it to be able to stand strong soon and be able to follow the herd because she stopped to give birth and they've moved up ahead 100 yards or two. And she needs to reconnect with the, the protection of the herd. Well, that baby, after getting knocked down, got right up again. And he says that's the way it's supposed to be. You just watch the way a giraffe birth, birth is supposed to come down. Well, you know, I, I like to connect those experiences with things that I know spiritually. And I, my mind went immediately to uh, James chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, 
when you consider various trials, it produces the ability to stand strong in your faith. And that's what happens. Doesn't it happen in life that trials don't come at a good time? They always come at a bad time. But once we get up from a trial, we realize that we got through it, probably with God's help, and we give him the glory for that, and we thank him that we're on our way again, and only to get knocked down again in a very inconvenient time. And uh, that is what's produced. Any strength that we have in our faith has come from the hard times, and I wouldn't trade my hard times for more good times. Uh, they're the times that have given me a, a really long-term, uh, persistent faith in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness that he will stay with me during the hard times, even though I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And that should be how it is with you too. So that's why Paul said, make friends with your trials. They're, eventually their trials are going to do something good for you, although nobody with a brain enjoys them while you're going through them. Although I've met people so nutty in their religious faith that they praise God for the trial. I just uh, praise him through the trial. And uh, so <laughs> you can do what you want to do. I have uh, just short of about two minutes. I'm trying to think of a story I could tell in two minutes to get us out of here on time. Um, so let me think. And I think I'm going to go with uh, the cobra. I'm going to make a story that's normally a little longer, a little shorter. I had animals I hated. Well, hated is kind of a strong word. But just to say I had no desire to spend much time with them. And at the zoo, it was our king cobra. And it came uh, injured. Uh, for its whole life. When it was young, it had had a fight with a mongoose, and the mongoose had torn up its eye so that it was all scarred around its eye. And every time the, sh the cobra came to a time when it would shed its skin, the skin around its eye wouldn't come off, leaving that scale there to get milky and infected unless somebody would actually grab the snake and then surgically remove the scale that looked like a contact lens which was atta attached to the rest of the skin. And anybody at the health center knew that two times a year, one of your jobs would be to go down and help surgically remove that scale. It wasn't a good feeling because we had the largest cobra in captivity at uh, 15 feet and uh, 13 feet. And it, um, it just was dangerous. You, you couldn't afford a mistake because a 13-foot cobra has enough venom in its venom glands to kill 500 adult males, my size. And so it was a hard job. But the day came, finally, when the reptile house called and said, Richmond, cobra shed its skin, but you got it. The eye cap didn't come off. You and Doc got to come down and remove that eye cap for us. Can you do it tomorrow? Say about 9? I said, sure, we'll be down. Well, I went to the pharmacy where Dr. Bernstein was cleaning out his black bag, and I said, reptile house called. He said, uh, Raja, the king. I said, yeah. He says, I've been waiting for that to happen. Just like me, he had, had it out in his mind. It was something that was coming on a calendar towards us, and finally the day came. So the next morning we were there at 9, we walked down the crisscrossed aisle of the reptile house that had hundreds and hundreds of aquariums that had either green or red dots. The green were non-poisonous reptiles and the red was poisonous. Seemed to be many more red ones than green ones. Seemed like a very undesirable place to be taking a walk, to tell you the truth. But we got down about 40 yards into the reptile house and there were three men, two keepers and the curator of reptiles, waiting for us with a surgical table that was about, I'd say about this high off the ground, and waiting for us. And uh, so uh, I, I saw that the two keepers had bird nets, just the kind you catch a canary or a parakeet out of the air with. And the uh, curator didn't have anything, and 
the vet had put him on his surgical mask and had his rubber gloves ready, and he had a scalpel in one hand, a pair of tweezers in the other. And so we stood about uh, 10 feet back. We'd have stood further, but there was a wall and uh, prevented us getting any further, the cobra. But those guys moved to either side of the cage. The door was about this high off the ground. It looked like the back of an ice cream truck with a window in it. And uh, so uh, they positioned themselves about three, four feet each side of the cage. And the curator stood six feet in front of the cage. And so he signaled to one of the keepers, open the door. And the keeper, one keeper reached out, opened the door and stepped back. And that cobra came up. And then he hooded. Do you know what I mean by hooding? They make their head look real big, so they're impressive. And uh, then he did some weird things. I had never been with a cobra that large, nor had I known that they made sounds. They growl like a dog growls. And can you imagine that? Have you ever heard this before? And they also salivate while they're growling. So you have a cobra, and since his cage is about four feet off the ground, who's now another three and a half feet, so he's looking at us from about uh, the height of a basketball player, looking down on us. And their eyes are very alert. They look much more intelligent than most snakes. And he was studying each person as if he were counting each person and thinking, what order shall I kill them in? <laughs> and all the while, he's sucking in air, which creates a hiss. And as the air comes out, he goes. <laughs> like that. And I got big eyes. And uh, I thought split pea soup's going to go everywhere in just a second. <laughs> This thing is possessed. I'm sure it's possessed. And uh, so you can certainly, in a moment like that, get an understanding why people uh, think of snakes as evil. They're not on the day that God made them. He said they were good, just don't want to hang out much with them. And uh, so at any rate, uh, the uh, snake finally zeroed in on the curators as his target. And he lunged forward because they don't strike like a cobra makes an S and straightens it out at 60 miles per hour. Very fast strike. A cobra is a snake-eating snake, and it just falls on its prey, so it just has about that much speed. You get a little advantage there with their lack of speed. So the cobra got up and was staring and shaking and trembling, and saliva was coming out, and it was continuing to growl. And all of a sudden, he opened his mouth as wide as he could open it. We saw the two fangs appear, and then he lunged forward at the curator. Really a creepy feeling. And as he lunged, the two keepers got their little bird nets out, and the cobra, cobra's head went into the bird nets, and the fangs came out the net. And uh, the uh, curator of, of uh, reptiles ran forward and grabbed the cobra right behind his venom sacks. And those guys dropped their nets and grabbed the center and the end of the body, and they walked together to the surgical table and put the head down. And the curator said, get to work, doc. So that <laughs> I could see my, my boss was not altogether <laughs> in surgical mode. He looked like he had Parkinson's disease. And uh, I don't mean to make fun of Parkinson's disease. That's what it looked like he had, though. And so his hand gets, it's like I'm thinking, you're going to slaughter that cobra's eye. But as he got, he's a good man, and he got control. And as he got close to the eye, his hand got more and more still. And he started to cut away and pull up a little bit with the tweezers and, and cut a little bit more and pull up a little bit more. All the while, the snake is growling. And you can see a fang trying to reach for a thumb or something to inject the curator with. Are any of you wondering why we just didn't give the snake a shot and make him go to sleep? And a lot of people wonder that at this point in the story. So I mentioned that all anesthesia was designed for warm-blooded animals, and you can't predict what it'll do in a cobra. So it could be that the, uh, the curator 
I would assume that the uh, snake, and the vet would especially, uh, assume that the snake was asleep, but he wouldn't be. So he could be working away down there quietly. And all of a sudden, <laughs> he could uh, have that cobra pumping enough venom to kill 500 people. So that's why they don't do that. And I uh, just wanted you to know. So, at any rate, the curator looks up at me and says, Richmond, you got any cuts on your hands? And, and I did. All, I was grabbing animals all day long, every day. I usually had cuts and bites, and, uh, but I didn't this day. And I says, no. And he says, run to the paper towel machine, get me uh, 10 paper towels, real quick. So I ran and went, did I get 10? I think I got 10. And uh, so I brought him back. I says, now what would you like me to do? He says, from both ends, turn them until there's hard, a hard mass of 10 paper towels. So I did. I says, okay, now what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to stick them in the cobra's mouth. I said, you're mama. Get out of here. He says, Richmond, he says, I don't feel well. He was sheet white, the way you get before you're going to faint. And uh, he looked ill. He looked weak. His hands were trembling. And he says, I'm getting weak and I don't feel well. Let's drain some poison from the cobra so that if any of us do get bit, there's a chance we might survive the bite. So with all of the courage I could muster, I started putting that paper towel towards the cobra's mouth. And all of a sudden, he got interested in the paper towel. And he began to open his mouth very slowly until it was pretty wide open. When I got the towel, it <clears throat> bites in and starts chewing into it. And what was at first a light tan paper towel turned National Geographic yellow. And what was a light feeling of even 10 paper towels don't weigh very much. But all of a sudden, I had a heavy glop of 10 paper towels filled almost to my fingernails. I would, uh, was sad that I hadn't checked for hangnails. And anything that you get through that could seep into your system, anything like a mucosal area, the inside of your nose, by your eye, anything like that, the cobra could get into your system and make you very sick. So he chewed it, and he chewed through it. He chewed through 10 paper towels. And all of a sudden, they had two masses of, of dripping paper towels, every drop of which could kill a man, dropped it in the trash can, heard the vet say, I'm finished. The men began to back up. They got the tail in the, the cage. They got the midsection in the cage. And finally, there was the curator looking back at us. And he said words in this position that I will never forget. And it's been a while ago. He says, cobras are easy to grab. They're hard to let go. And then he went, one, two, three. And he threw the head in. The keeper slammed the door shut. And we all just found something to lean against that had a green dot on it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and managed. I did that, that whole procedure 10 times while I worked at the zoo. And on the day that I walked out, I looked back and I thought, no more cobras. But how wrong could I be? I was a youth director right after that. And... <laughs> About three months into it, I got a telephone call at 3 o'clock in the morning from a mother who was obviously sobbing. And she says, I just had to talk to somebody. I'm so sorry for calling at 3 o'clock in the morning. She says, but Kimmy, my daughter died tonight. And I said, what? She said, darling beach girl was down in Orange County that I was working at a big Presbyterian church. And I says, what happened? She said, she was living a double life, Gary. We all thought she was the girl next door. And and just a perfect little Christian girl. She was on drugs and alcohol all the time. I just found that out tonight. She said, and uh, her boyfriend was drunk, driving his Mustang convertible, and didn't make a turn as he was coming down from the country club. And uh, he was killed, my daughter was killed, and her best girlfriend and her best girlfriend's boyfriend were killed as the Mustang rolled into a canyon 
and crushed the life out of all of them. She says, and I didn't know who else to call because I know how much you cared for her, even though you'd only known her three months. She was especially fond of you, and I just needed to call and ask if you could help with the funeral. Uh, of all the things I hate to do, it's teenage funerals. But to this date, there's only been one natural death in the 16 funerals that I've done for teenagers, just one that died of leukemia. The rest of them were alcohol and drug-related. And uh, so I have a special hatred for that. And my mother committed suicide after being on prescription drugs and, and uh, not being able to cope with life. So I have a real disdain for pharmakia, as the Bible would call it, which means the devil's work or sorcery, when we interpret it correctly from the New Testament means trouble when kids take it, getting an, an alternate reality or a high. And so uh, I got off the phone with Kim's mother, and uh, I, my wife was just waiting to find out who would call at 3 o'clock in the morning what I was talking about, and I said, honey, the cobras are still here. I said, there's lots of things that are easy to grab and hard to let go, and Kim had been holding on to drugs and alcohol and not letting anybody know, and uh, she's dead. And I've since then sort of done an inventory of things like pornography. I, as I grew out of being a youth director and went to adult ministry and started doing marriage counseling, every now and then you'd hear that somebody was into pornography, no big deal. But as I got years and years and years past, it seemed like one in five marriages were dealing with that as a subject. And uh, infidelity and uh, uh, too many hours at work. Uh, arguing, poor communication techniques. It didn't matter. There were a whole lot of things that were easy to grab and hard to let go that people wouldn't let go of. And what I want to say as I end this story, and this is the conclusion of this story, this is a word to the worship team. As I conclude this story, I'd say that uh, we have a Savior who's really good at prying fingers off of cobras and who can take care of those needs and prepare us for um, things that are lethal in life. Give us the strength to get away from them and forgive us for the things that we've involved ourselves in. His grace is sufficient. His strength is mighty. His power is mighty. And we can turn that over to him. We can turn our whole life to him. If you've never met him, then get the antidote uh, for the bite uh, that was given to you by that great serpent <laughs> that was in Eden. And uh, any rate, try to remember that cobra story. And if you got a hold of a cobra right now, go to somebody quick that you respect and trust and help get some counsel and some heart and care and get away from that. Get your hands off of it. And, uh, or as Bob Newhart once said, cut it out <laughs> so you don't let it kill you. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God and you teach us to depend on you. There's not a, a problem that you can't handle. Nothing's difficult for you. But we need to ask for help, and uh, he gives to those that asks, and those that seek will find. So we pray that as we've learned from the animals today that uh, you help us to uh, be wise to come to you, and wise to go to people who maybe have grabbed cobras and haven't let them go, and maybe be their friend enough to encourage them to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Well, uh, you all survived the stories of the morning. That's the first three. There'll be another three next hour. So if you want to stay for round two, you'll hear some different stories. Let's stand. And again, as this wasn't a traditional sermon, but we got biblical truth because in nature, God uses everything for His purpose. 
and for His good, and I hope you enjoy this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning, and as we leave today, we are reminded that there are a lot of stories from nature that help us see a glimpse of who You are and teach spiritual truths. Thank you for Gary and his sharing with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.